one of the sad things about what's going on in terms of the food of the African diaspora and where it's going is it hasn't opened up all that much. I don't think that African Americans particularly have been the beneficiaries in any way of the great culinary revolution. I mean, we were just getting out of the kitchen when the kitchen started to be lucrative. And so now, emotionally, mentally, and on any number of other levels, people don't want to return to that kitchen. And yet, that kitchen, as it has evolved, has become extraordinarily lucrative. And so, we're in a kind of way left out, almost shut out. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. There's perhaps no greater expert on the foods and foodways of the African diaspora than Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Jessica is the author of 12 cookbooks, and in her more than three decades as a journalist, she's written book reviews, theater reviews, travel, feature, and beauty articles too numerous to note. She's a founding member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. She's decorated with awards and honors and holds multiple degrees, including a doctorate in performance studies from NYU. Dr. Jessica B. Harris damn near knows it all when it comes to African and Caribbean cuisines and culinary history. She's a living legend and overcame many obstacles as an African-American woman coming of age in a racially divided nation. As a child, she attended Eunice, the United Nations International School, and originally wanted to become an actress. At the time, in the early 1950s, things were very much still black and white. In terms of what's going on in history as I'm growing up, things are, things are interesting. I mean, as Eunice goes from being a pretty much sheltered existence of UN and UN-related people with very few Americans, there's a move. It moves from Parkway Village into Manhattan, 70th Street and 1st Avenue, and becomes a public-private school, if you will, in another kind of way. And at that point, you know, racism begins to raise its ugly head. I remember having an art teacher who, while I was really trying to figure out this theater thing that had bitten me, was like, oh, well, Jessica, you should know you'll never be an actress. Black people can't. You know, it's like, okay. Well, that was a first for me. And it was a very non-UN way of reacting. As I went to high school, there were roles. You know, I was probably, you know, go down in history as the only 15-year-old to play the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. I mean, I I played an older black woman in The Grass Heart by Truman Capote. I was always the character actress. You know, it wasn't as though this was something that was going to happen. My parents, who were children of the Depression, actually who were full-grown adults of the Depression, insisted that I have a training and background that would give me a J-O-B, preferably one with a pension. So I ended up being a French major. So that was a question of what Eunice, the UN school, had brought to my college. Now, as all of that was going on, I'm a child of the North. I was born and raised in the North, and I had no Southern relatives. I'm not someone who got sent home or sent South to visit Grandma. My grandma lived in the South Jamaica Projects. My other grandma lived in Plainfield, New Jersey. <laughs> they weren't even as far as Philadelphia. I saw things on the television, of course. The March on Washington, 
the civil rights movement things, the things that were going on in Little Rock, the things that were going on all the way. I went to high school at, gosh, I must have been 13, which was kind of young to participate. I went to college at 16, which was still young to participate. You know, back then in colleges, they had something called in loco parentis, in place of the parent. I went to an all-girls school in the 60s. We had to sign in, sign out. Each dorm had wardens. There was a time you had to be back in of every night. There was a lantern man who came to get you, to escort you to your dorm, where you could sign in so they knew you were there. There was no going over the fence to do this, and I don't know. Perhaps there were people who were braver and more stalwart than I. Certainly in the South, there were people who were valiant in ways that I can't imagine. But I did some things. I, with some friends, founded a SNCC chapter on Bryn Mawr campus, which I'm sure was probably the most bizarre SNCC campus chapter that existed. We were aware of things. I mean, I came clean for Jean, for Jean McCarthy. I mean, there were things that happened, I mean, in terms of civil rights, but also just in terms of what went on in the world. Hell no, we won't go. Vietnam War. My class, and I went back to my 45th class reunion, I guess it was, this past summer. We call ourselves the Great 68. 1968 was such a crucial and crux year for this country and in many ways for the world. There was so much that happened that went on, that didn't go on, that that should have gone on, that it was impossible not to be caught up in it. Before I worked at Essence, I worked at a magazine called Encore. Encore magazine was run by a lady named Ida Lewis, who had actually been, if I'm not mistaken, the first editor of Essence. What happened with that was people were moving beyond the John Johnson ebony thing. People were were looking at the world a different way. Black Enterprise started, and I've written for all three of them as, um, you know, at some point, masthead contributor. It was about trying to self-empower in other ways. It was about trying to create another world. My entire career, if you will, as a journalist came because I had a group of friends, some from high school, uh, some from neighborhoods, some from connections, who were interested in doing something with the black arts movement, if you will. And so as a part of that, we formed a group called Roots before the book, and I'm not sure how we spelled it, and I'm not sure even you know why we decided on that, but there was a magazine, there was actually a newspaper, pretty much a local rag, given out, I don't know if the cost or was like free with shoppers or whatever, that was up in Harlem, and somebody knew somebody who presented the guy with a proposition that we would write for it and give him an arts-related supplement. And I signed on to do book reviews, and I don't even know what I was doing. But, you know, I, I at that point lived in the West Village. I'd get on the train and head uptown to Harlem and hand in my copy. And about six weeks in, I realized I was the only one that was still doing it. Everybody else had kind of dropped out and gone one way or the other or had other things or other, you know, proverbial fish to fry. 
So I did it for a little bit longer, and then I took all of those things together and worked, uh, went, I don't even know what compelled or impelled me to go to, um, to Encore and took the book reviews down and said, look, I'd like to do book reviews for you, and I worked there. And that was probably the first place that actually paid me to write. And from there, it just kind of leapfrogged. Uh, at some point, the theater thing came in again, and I wrote um, theater reviews. In fact, I've been told, I'm not sure if it's true, but I like to think it is, that I'm the first black woman to vote for the Tonys. I um, was a second-night theater critic for the Amsterdam News for a couple of years, and as such reviewed the Broadway plays. I'm old enough so that, you know, things happen that become then firsts. Who knew? Through all of this, I'm teaching. These are all things that I'm doing while I am teaching full-time at Queens College, which I have done for 20, 45 years. Okay? So that these are all sort of hobby, ancillary, not necessarily tangential, but these are all things that I'm doing for my soul. I mean, I, I teach for my soul as well, but for a different side of my soul. Being travel editor was interesting, and it was not something that I started out as. I started out, at essence, doing book reviews. I wrote features. I did probably what is one of the first interviews of Alex Haley before Roots came out. I interviewed Alice Walker when she'd written Meridian before she was kind of on the radar and the way she certainly is today. I talked to Toni Morrison when she was writing, I guess it was Sula. I will always remember her talking about coming together with that sentence to make the first sentence of Sula, uh, where they tear down the old black neighborhood to build a golf course, and she was trying to come up with the words that would pull together the sweetness and the pain of that black community, and she came up with the blackberries and the brambles, and I, you know, I will always think of her and honor her as the extraordinary wordsmith that she is, and bless her heart as part of the mentor. She used to take me out to lunch when she was an editor at uh, Random House. And we'd go out to lunch and sit down and talk about all, you know, this and that and what all and what not. And um, I guess she realized how callow I was at that point because I know in the second part of the interview I did with her, my tape recorder stopped recording and I was taking notes as fast as I could, but technology failed me. You know, so those are the things that you deal with as you deal. But they've all been, you know, sort of extraordinary, extraordinary experiences. I mean, and, and the essence thing then morphed into travel as I, um, as they found out how much of a traveler I was. I was going to France at least once, possibly twice a year, just to keep my French up since I was a French major in college. And I'd lived in France for a year with a family that I went back and found 20 years after the fact and that I now see annually. And um, and then I'd done a graduate year in France. I actually have a degree from a French university. I have a licence S lettre from the Université de Nancy in Nancy, Francy.
my mother was a dietitian, so I have always eaten well. And I've always been conscious of what was going on the plate from my adult life. And I've always cooked because I'm an only child. And so if my mother was in the kitchen, I was probably in the kitchen in a crib and a something and a something watching her. Food has always been important. The first trip that I took to West Africa in 72, I took with my mother. I was going to go with a girlfriend who, for whatever reason, canceled at the last minute. And my mother said, well, I'll buy that ticket. I'll go with you. So my mom came with me. And... You know, seeing it and being with her on the continent already gave it a food bent. But equally, I had at essence begun to do, you know, all magazines, all newspapers, all things have what they refer to as the editorial calendar. And the editorial calendar usually plans out what you're going to do over the space of a year or six months or what have you, so that, you know, the proverbial advertising and editorial that are separated but at least advertising has an idea what's coming out in editorial so they can go out and sell it to the appropriate people. Well, in the course of coming up with, I guess, my second or third, I guess probably my second editorial calendar for Essence, I came up with the brilliant idea of why not work about travel and food. And remember, all of these things are happening together. So the first trip to Africa, the food, the travel, all of that is coming along within the space of sort of telescope time. So travel and food. I became the Go Gourmet, God help me. And um, so every other month, instead of writing just straight travel, I would write about travel with a food bent. So it was going to Guadeloupe to look at the food. It was going to Hong Kong and meeting Willie Mark. It was really seriously looking at the food of the place or at the travel of the place through the food of the place. And that certainly framed much of what I did. What it also did was it allowed me to, maybe a year or two later, begin to make connections, to begin to think about things, to begin to think about, well, wait a minute, I tasted something very much like this six months ago or three weeks ago or, you know, a year and a half ago. This is different. This is something else. These things connect dots. Why is my mouth doing that? And then that's pretty much how that informed what I then subsequently began doing, which is, I guess, the food history thing. And that, I guess, takes us to the early 80s. And I am no longer writing for Essence. I'm writing no longer. I wrote for a brief moment for something called Elan, all of the three magazines, Encore, Essence, and Elan, beginning with Ease. Elan was very short-lived, but allowed me to do more food, travel, culture writing. And then after that, I started writing for Travel Weekly. Travel Weekly, which is a trade publication that goes to travel agents. You know, travel agents were king back then. And so writing for them, writing things that, you know, told them about what their clients could do, how their clients could do it, where their clients could do it, and so on and so forth, was something that I did for several years. And in the course of that, broadened my scope of the African Atlantic world and where I'd been in it, because I worked on the Caribbean desk, and I worked on the what was then the African-slash-South African desk. I didn't work on South Africa, although I had a lovely lunch with somebody from the South African Tourist Board that really told me how how wonderful he thought I was. I spoke fluent French. He was a French 
origin and how, you know, I should really come to South Africa and I could be honorary, whatever, I would have a space. Like, no, I don't think so. So that, I, I did go to South Africa, but much, much later, after there were no questions of passbooks and what it said on them. But that's kind of how that all came together. By the 80s, I had written for Essence. I had been the Go Gourmet. I had done food and travel writing, a fair amount of it. I'd also continued it at Travel Weekly. I'd, I'd even done an article on uh, Bahia, Brazil for Vogue. Um, you know, I had done a couple of different things that had happened with that. My first book was not a cookbook. The first book that I sold, it was not the first book that was printed. The first book that I sold was actually a third world women's beauty book and it involved recipe because it was about homemade potions and lotions and whatnot and that book got orphaned and in the course of it getting orphaning meaning that the editor who had bought it left and the editor who had you know ended up with it on her desk was less than thrilled with it and kind of it, it died a borning, which was not a good thing when you go to turn in your final manuscript and your editor tells you, oh, by the way, we're not going to publish that. The good thing out of it, you know, doors open, doors close, doors close, doors open. The good thing about it was I ended up with an agent. And I was finishing up my doctoral dissertation at the same time, and the agent sort of said, well, okay, this is not happening. What would you like to do now? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe write a cookbook. You know, well, what do you want to write it about? And I don't even know why. I said, you know, food made with pepper and, ch and chili from around the world. And at that point, you know, it was a business where there were possibilities and opportunities. And it probably, not probably, it certainly was not as difficult to get something published. I had a track record. I could cobble together a decent English sentence. And um, I wrote a proposal. Um, my agent came back, and God bless Carol Abel, she came back, up, I don't know, maybe a month later, and said, well, we sold that. And that was that. It went to Athenaeum. It did not sell for vast amounts of money. I am not retired and living on the Riviera, you will note. But it sold. And it sold as a paperback as well. And it is, unfortunately, to this date, the only book I've done that ever had a British edition. And it was interesting because what happened was, um, you know, when it came out, there was a little sort of flurry and it sold enough money to allow the publisher to say, OK, we'll buy another book for you. And I don't know what they wanted me to do, but what I wanted to do at that point was a book that in my head was called Cornbread Beans and Leafy Greens, but which came out as Iron Pots and Wooden Spoons, Africa's Gifts to New World Cooking. And that, if you will, is the book that put me wherever I am on whatever map it is. And that happened as a result of literally a lady named Nancy Harmon Jenkins, who read it, liked it, and was at that point doing a series for the New York Times called Cooks on the Map, and decided that I should be a cook on the map. So she called me up. I think by that point in time, I had moved to Brooklyn, which means it is post-88, probably post-89, called me up and said, you know, I really would like to do an article, came to Brooklyn. I became a cook on the map. 
and she's the one who baptized me, if you will, with the, um, or tasked me, which is probably more important, with the idea of being a food historian, a culinary historian, and, you know, sort of like, in the beginning was the word. I had no idea what a culinary historian was. But once somebody tells you that is what you are, then that is what you have to become. Southern food is so complex. I mean, in fact, the South, capital T, capital S, is so complex and because because the South brings with it questions of enslavement, which, you know, is kind of not our national brightest moment, but it also brings with it questions of the aftermath of enslavement, which take us up to and into Trayvon. You know, we have a national history vis-a-vis race is not really great. Okay? I was uh, reading an email from a girlfriend of mine today and she said something that I thought, whoa, okay. And basically, and I'm probably paraphrasing her badly, she said, of course all black people in the Americas are insane. Consider the history. You know? The fact that people aren't ready to deal with that or acknowledge that or think about that is problematic. It at some point becomes a hindrance to the country because it's all of those folks who are capable of the same thing who are not having access to it. When we began this conversation, I told you how extraordinary my parents were. Everybody doesn't have extraordinary parents. It doesn't mean that everybody doesn't have extraordinary abilities. It may mean that they're not able to tap them, that they, you know, can't get to where they need to be, that the person does not appear. My parents were my major catalyst, but there have been pushes and shoves. Who knows why I met Sam Floyd? Who knows why he dragged me to meet James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and Tony Martin? Who knows? I have no idea, but there are people who certainly were alive well and living at that same time who didn't meet him. There were people working at Queens College right alongside him who didn't know those folks. You know, what happens? How does that happen? How much does race inflect that? How much does race inflect one's own ideas of what one should do? Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'll never get there. You know, every once in a while I wonder, gee, what would I have done if I had even tried to be an actress? I never tried. Too many people told me that wasn't going to happen. You know, so that there are things that have been hampered for the entire country, for the entire society, probably for the entire hemisphere, certainly, if not the world, because of this thing that we need to get out from under. Now, how are we going to do it? I don't know. But I think one of the things that I increasingly am appreciating about food is it has afforded me the ability to talk about these things in a forum 
that is in some ways less confrontational. Talking about food allows me to talk about race and gender and class. And those are things we don't talk about in this country. And we certainly don't talk about in public fora. And for that, I am and will always be grateful to food. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee with additional research and production from Nicole Taylor and Leah Eden. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Relax, It's Just the End of the World by Tax Star, Dawn by Jerome LOL, Four of Seven by Jack Inslee, Island by AGT, I Know You by Chits, Sneaky Sensual by Space Ghost, and once again, Relax, It's Just the End of the World by Tax Star. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.